Hello, everyone. This is your brief reminder that this conversation was recorded a couple of years ago, but should still be perfectly relevant to all of your Final Fantasy V needs, but will lack any potential references that could have come up from, say, the Pixel remaster or anything that's newer along those lines. Also, light spoiler warning, definitely don't get into any major plot details of the other games after this, but a couple of little setting points for like 7 and 15 and things like that. So just a little bit of a warning for all of that. And a reminder that if you can't wait for the next episode, you got to go to patreon.com slash ffweekly, where we've recorded all the way up through the end of Final Fantasy VII. And you can also find more Final Fantasy content, a ton of comic book and video game and pro wrestling and Star Wars podcasts, a bunch of written stuff, all kinds of music, and really just anything and everything that I can think of for super nerds over at patreon.com slash DC Productions. Without further ado, let's get to the show. Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I am Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we'll be discussing the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy V, directed by Hironobu Sakaguchi. It was written by Sakaguchi and Yashinori Katase, designed by Hiroyoku Ito. The art design was by Yoshitaka Amano, and the music by Nobuo Uematsu. So pretty much the people who made the first five Final Fantasy games before they started branching out and inviting other people into their play and workshop. It was released for the Super Nintendo, originally just in Japan, in 1992. So this is the last game in the series where we will have this problem of it not being released originally in the United States, only coming over later in 1999 for the PlayStation and then the Game Boy Advance in 2006 in the collections and anthology versions, respectively. The game has mostly been very well received, uh, even those re-releases getting a score of 82 from Game Rankings, a Metacritic score of 83 out of 100 when it was released on the Game Boy Advance. Its original release got a 34 out of 40 from Famitsu. We've gone over why that's a little bit strange. That's four people reviewing it out of a score of a possible 10 of 10. So... Mostly well-reviewed, though the general consensus seemed to be that the story and characters are not quite as deep as they were in the game either before it or after it, and I think that's probably a fair critique, though we'll explore that quite a bit. But this game is almost universally praised for both its battle system and its use of the job system, which is still by many people considered to be the best implementation of a job system in any video game, including modern online MMORPGs that you have to play or you have to pay, you know, a monthly fee for. And so it's beloved for its battle system and also, I think, generally well-received for its aesthetics, people that tend to get down on how drab and dark Final Fantasy games can be, especially the next several after this, uh, 6, 7, and 8. 5 is bright and colorful and I, I think is generally well loved for that. So we'll talk a, a lot about all of that. We're going to get through the plot maybe a bit quicker than we did with Final Fantasy 4 because, as I said, there's not quite as much in terms of depth to what's going on here, but we may challenge that a bit as we go along the way as well. So, as we like to do, before we get into talking about the game itself, let's talk a little bit about our own experiences with the game coming into our lives, which also might help explain a little bit why our conversation on this one might not run quite as deep as it did for the last game and for the next one. 
So my first experience with Final Fantasy V was in hearing about it online, or reading about it, I suppose. Uh, reading other people who had downloaded the game illegally and played it that way, uh, the fan translations that came with it, uh, a certain main character being named, not Bartz, but... Uh... <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry. what was he now let's address the butts in the room at the very beginning of this. All right, yeah, uh, called butts, which I imagine has to do with uh, pronunciation of certain vowel sounds uh, between Japanese and English. Absolutely. Those two things would be spelled roughly the same. The R sound is oftentimes just, you know, used improperly when translating. Doesn't need to be there. Probably was meant to indicate the, the proper vowel usage more than anything, but... Yeah, I think kind of a great symbol for how this game has been remembered is that this is kind of one of the main things you, you kind of laugh at a little bit and you go, oh yeah, the game where the main hero is butts. And it, it has some hurdles, absolutely, that it has to overcome in order for it to win over people. And I think that's part of the reason why there are a lot of people out there who love Final Fantasy V and they're very hardcore about it because they were able to see past some surface level kind of silliness and find a really quality experience here. Yeah, and it is a bit goofy in a lot of ways. Bart's is kind of a dork. I played the Final Fantasy V for the PlayStation back in the late 90s, early aughts. Uh, and then I played it again on the Game Boy Advance and so I played it those two times, and then for this podcast, I was, I'm, you know, I'm playing it again. But those are the only three times I've played the game, so I'm not as familiar with this as I am with one and four and six. And so while I really like it, it does strike me, you know, I'm playing through this game again, and it's like all the puns, and they're they're kind of ribbing each other the whole time, and it's a little bit goofy and I don't think that's a bad thing you were talking about it being sort of bright and, and cheery and it's maybe got that adventurous quality that we associated with 3 but yeah there's I, I would say it's a feature not a bug but it took me some getting used to yeah and I have very similar experience with this again I, the, for a lot of the other games in the series it really stands out in my mind. I remember where I was when I or we first got the game. I remember where I was when we finished it. I remember how I felt. I, with this game, remember picking it up in college for the Game Boy Advance and kind of slowly playing through it while I was at my first year of school at CU, you know, really trying to adapt to that whole, you know, the college existence and not in maybe a typical way, but I was, you know, really working hard that year and didn't think much about games. I was, you know, so I, I did not pay as deep attention to this one as I did plenty of the others. It was more of a, you know, late night kind of distraction. And like a lot of people, I ended up kind of checking out on the story halfway into it, which really surprised me as somebody who so often, you know, I get frustrated with people who only want to talk about Final Fantasy games when it comes to their gameplay, you know, because that it just seems so strange to me that a person would find the stories in these games to be secondary when it seems obvious to me that in their presentation, they're supposed to be first and foremost. But then... There's this experience where I had an absolute blast playing it and I had I spent more time like changing around my character's jobs and trying to figure out how to get this piece of equipment or that job, get all the different stuff for different people, be able to have all of my heroes become these kind of super gods who could do everything and it was so much fun just to tool around like in the menus. I think this is the first time I can remember other than I had played Final Fantasy Tactics before this. So for me, Tactics was the first game that did it. But knowing later that this came first, it was like it's so much fun to not even travel the world map or be in battle or be reading the story, but to just be in the menus messing with stats. Yeah, I dig it. The The gameplay is quite a bit of fun. The advanced version adds some some extra classes in there which is which is also 
fun to play with and, and see you know what combinations of abilities get you the best characters. But that is for another podcast, at least as I understand our current format. <laughs> our general attempt at structure. <laughs> All right, so shall we attempt to talk about the plot, themes, and characters of one Final Fantasy V? Let's do it. Let, let's hop right in. And again, this is one of those things, too, where I remember the beginning having a... I did see the PlayStation version when I first... I didn't play through it, but I did get the PlayStation version of it when it came out years before the Game Boy Advance one. So I had seen... Like, the first thing I had seen of Final Fantasy V was that CGI video. Oh, sure. PlayStation 1 quality with the dragon. So kind of silly, but also... Uh, the indelible image of the game for me is the dragon, and right. I think purposefully so. Fire, water, wind, earth. The peace and prosperity of the world is thanks to the power of these crystals. However, that power is nearing its limit. Not far off is the day when the wind slows, the water stills, and the earth trembles and quakes. And yet, everyone remains blissfully unaware, and the grave secret hidden within the crystals remains untold. All right, I love a number of things about this really quickly. References, obviously, to the first game with the still seas and the rotting earth. We've got natural stuff out of order. We've got reference to the fourth game with the people of the planet being blissfully unaware. And we've got a similarity with the third game, which begins with a crystal speaking to us. And here we're just being spoken to about the crystals but uh yeah that i mean that's a final fantasy sentence you just read (laughs) so our game begins with king tycoon alexander highwind tycoon preparing to depart for the wind shrine he has realized he, he senses the strangeness in the wind he he feels that the wind is beginning to slow so he's preparing his wind drake to fly him to the wind shrine. His daughter, Lena, is nervous. Um, she does not have a good feeling about this, but he asks her to stay and, and keep an eye on the kingdom while he goes to investigate. I love that you just made a Star Wars reference. Did I do that? In the middle of a, yeah. I may have done that. <laughs> the bad feeling about this. <laughs> uh. Almost as soon as King Tycoon arrives, the wind crystal shatters, which stops the wind all across the world which people, you know, take note of. And when he doesn't return, Lena, the princess, decides to rush off and find him, which is expressly what he told her not to do. There's a pirate out at sea who notices the change in weather. And there is an old man inside a meteorite falling to the earth. And I gotta say, this is, I think this is the first time we have a meteor be part of the game, be part of the storyline in Final Fantasy. And then it happens again and again, right? This is a motif we see in in 7. 14, kind of. 14. I mean, there's a dragon inside of that one, but still I'm counting it. 15, certainly, because Titan caught the meteor. Correct. And then there are, that's where, how they get their power. That's where the Exernius power station gets its, its power. Final Fantasy Spirits Within. Of course, Right. Kind of in 13 where, you know, spoilers, but there's a planet becomes kind of a meteor-like device. Right, right, right. (laughs) Becomes meteor adjacent. And it's space travel, which which harkens back to 4. Right. Though we don't know yet that Goliath is from another world. 
but I do find it interesting too, as we've talked about, especially with four, and this would be true in a lot of the other games throughout the series. While they'll put you immediately in to, to borrow from a later game, an other world, <laughs> they do hold off on their craziness typically until their final act, maybe halfway through, maybe after act one, right. like Final Fantasy VIII does. But they tend to try to bring you in a little bit slower with the heavy doses of either fantasy or science fiction, whatever you think of being typical tropes of those. They, they try to hold off. And right here, right off the bat, there's right. a bunch of craziness, which I think is a pretty cool way to go. But I can also see why, for some people, that might be a bit, like, much. <laughs> so... The first character we get to control is Bartz Klosser. B-A-R-T-Z, not B-U-T-Z-Z-Z. Bartz is wandering around the countryside by himself. Well, he's got his, he's got his chocobo buddy, Boko. And he's just uh, out doing his thing. So you talked about we just had this big grand introduction with nobody knows what's going to happen, though the world's about to go all crazy and then King Tycoon does his thing, and then the pirate notices the water or the wind has stopped, and then there's a guy in a meteorite. But then we, we focus in. We, we narrow in on just a guy traveling around. He's got a campfire. He's with his trusty steed. And then that's when the meteor hits. So this meteor crashes. He called me his trusty yeah. steed. Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the meteorite crashes near Tycoon Castle. Bart's decides to investigate, and there he finds a pink-haired girl under attack by goblins. That old chestnut. <laughs> like you do when you're out wandering the woods. So he rescues the pink-haired girl. Her name is Lena. She does not yet tell him that she is the princess of Tycoon. And then they find, amongst the wreckage of the meteor crash, an old man with a beard who remembers his name is Golov, but doesn't remember anything else. As we did with the fourth installment, I think we should stop here and talk a little bit about these characters. And I want to start with a completely unfair framing of it, actually, oh, and say that <laughs> I think part of the reason why I had difficulty connecting with these characters in my first playthrough, as I was talking about, was that they reminded me a lot of archetypes found in Chrono Trigger, which I now understand as an adult person came later. As opposed and to a child not person? That's that's correct. I was not a human being when I was a child. Uh, you know, breaking news here on the podcast. But, <laughs> it, it, you know, that's one of those things where maybe when you're younger, you your own association with a thing kind of overrates or overcomes the reality of the situation which is that these characters were pretty deep for their time and the fact that a few years later this same grouping of creative people came up with similar characters who were more interesting and better developed doesn't mean that you shouldn't find time to discuss these ones but in particular with Lena and Marley or Marl, people say her name differently, but you've got the princess who doesn't tell you that she's a princess, who's a bit more rambunctious than you expect princesses to be, certainly maybe in Disney movies or something like that, and the happy-go-lucky, Bart's Klosser type of character that's a bit of a blank slate, especially early on. It kind of reminds you of Chrono just running around doing good for no particular reason. But I do think these are interesting characters, Gallif in particular. So maybe, you know, I'm sure you've got some things to say about those two characters. Early on, those are just kind of my takes that they're archetypal, but interesting archetypes that go to some interesting places. Gallif, I think, a bit different. Yeah, I really dig... Golov. I think he's a... Well, you talked about archetypes, so he is the archetypical dude who has lost his memory. Even though he's an older character, he doesn't really play the mentor type very much. He, he's more the... In Final Fantasy IV, we talked about that Sid being sort of the goofy uncle, crazy pirate archetype. Golov fits that a little bit. He's very rambunctious. 
he's very uh, craggy. You know, he he pokes fun at the other guys. He you know he calls them whippersnappers. And then when he can't rem or when he doesn't want to do a thing, he he pretends like he can't remember sometimes because he's got this problem with his memory at the beginning. So he's he's really mischievous in that way. And and I dig him as a character. And then uh, as we go through the plot, we'll talk about more of his development. I think you're right about Barts and Lena. I think Lena is sort of that archetypical princess going on an adventure. And between Lena and Barts, I think she gets less development. I like her as this courageous figure who is going to defy her father and go in search of him once the wind stops. She has some pretty good heroic moments that we'll talk about when we get to them. Barts definitely starts out as just this sort of dorky, not quite a blank slate, but almost, just like you said. Again, it took me a while to get a hold of the dorkiness of it all. But he's always, like, he's always poking at things, and, and there are puns, and he's just sort of cracking wise. He's just, he's on the adventure to be on the adventure. He does get some good moments, some good development moments later. But right now, early on, he, he gets what I think is one of his best moments. And this is where we can refer to Joseph Campbell. So after our three characters here introduce themselves to each other, Lena mentions that she's going to the Wind Shrine. And then Goliath has a, an insight of memory, and he realizes, oh yes, I too was going to the Wind Shrine. I will go with you. And then the two of them look at Bart's, and the obvious thing for Bart's to do would, would be to say, oh sure, I'm an adventurer. I will go on your adventure with you. But that's not what happens. He refuses the call to adventure. And he says, good luck, you two. I'm going my own way. <laughs> Sounds great. Have fun storming the castle. <laughs> <laughs> Very Bilbo Baggins of him. Very, uh, right. Uh, I, I think I'll have a cup of tea and you guys have fun at the Wind Tavern. Th that is absolutely one of the main features of the hero's journey, according to Joseph Campbell, the refusal of the call. So you're right, he's a bit of a, just an adventurer dude, but he does also choose not to go on the adventure at first. He has his mind changed by his, his trusty Chocobo Boko, as they're sort of riding around, Boko's making noises at him. I can't tell if Boko is meant to actually be talking, or if Bart's is talking to himself using Boko as like a sounding board. But eventually he decides... Yeah, if it's one of those like family guy situations where some people can understand Stewie and some people can't, <laughs> who knows? Uh, Bart's is the only one that can hear <laughs> Boko talking. Interesting pull. So he changes his mind and he returns to find the two of them just in time to save them from yet more goblins and decides to join them on their quest. Deus Ex Goblina. Ah, <laughs> uh, Okay. I apologize. He's just decided to help them out, and then there's another earthquake, and he, he's running through the through this little uh, canyon on his trusty chocobo, and he picks up Lena and Goliath, and they once the earthquake stops, they find themselves blocked in on all sides, except for there's this little cave over here. So they decide to go to the cave, and it turns out the cave is a pirate's hideout. Barts and Goliath have the brilliant idea to just steal the pirate ship because, hey, I mean, they're pirates anyway, so it's, you know, we're stealing from thieves. And also, three people with no experience can totally sail a pirate ship. <laughs> also, the wind has stopped, so the sailing's going to be goofy anyway. There is a kind of a, a princess bride feel to this caper. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I kind of dig that as a parallel. It's it's sort of an odd, goofy adventure in a lot of ways, not unlike Princess Bride. Right. You know what the other one I was thinking of when you were talking about Gallif and explaining him? I thought of Little Miss Sunshine. I thought of the grandpa. And then I was like, this whole adventure is kind of like Little Miss Sunshine. Bart's is the blank slate dad. 
who didn't really want to go on this adventure, but kind of just gets pulled into it. And there's all these family members that kind of fit into an archetype, but they're just off of it. And it's all so goofy and ridiculous, but somehow kind of touching and endearing and <laughs> quality stuff. <laughs> so I'm going with Little Miss Sunshine. I'm going with Final Fantasy V. And I love that movie, by the way. That's a it's huge a compliment. So, yeah. But even if the whole movie doesn't work, I do think Gollif as Grandpa <laughs> who's you do you know, messing with the grandkids and trying uh-huh. to get them to do crazy stuff, having yeah. her dance to Rick James songs. Yeah, that was you know? that was beautiful. But you remember like he's shooting Gollif. up heroin the whole all through that movie, right? Right, right. Yeah, I don't think Gollif. No, but he's got you know his weird memory issues and oh, it's, it's kind of like you're talking about like him for like purposefully or pretending to forget things when he just doesn't want to answer a question. Right. <laughs> okay. So anyway, pirates catch our trio in the act of trying to steal a pirate ship, and their captain, Ferris, decides to imprison them. But Ferris also sees that Lena, the pink-haired girl, is wearing a pendant that is eerily like his own pendant. So after giving it some thought, Captain Ferris decides to release them, and he reveals that the reason his ship can still move is thanks to a tame sea dragon named Sildra. So Ferris agrees to take them all to the Wind Shrine. Now, here's one of the things that strikes me about Final Fantasy V. I've already described it as goofy, but it's also odd. Like, sometimes things happen just because they happen. It's like, okay, the wind has stopped, and last time in Final Fantasy I when we said the wind was stopped, we could still sail the ship, and people gave us a hard time for that. So this time... I know what we'll do. We'll have a tame sea dragon. And there's a lot of stuff like this where it's just like, oh, and now suddenly superpowers can be transferred because we're in a giant tree, which I'll talk about more later. I I want to take note of some of these sort of odd plot mechanisms that seem to come out of nowhere because it just strikes me as whimsical in a way. Yeah, a lot of comic books do that where... They've either written themselves into a problem or they just feel like adding another character to the sequence of events. They're kind of looking for an excuse to do something and they'll be like, oh, yeah, that guy who used to be dead is no longer dead because it turns out this person has a power when combined with this other person's brings people back from the dead. You are like starting now. And then there's some of that in this. But I, I think you chose the right word there. It's not necessarily. And I was joking earlier with the. Deus Ex Goblina, but it's not necessarily poor writing. It's whimsical. It's a bit more whimsical. The the Princess Bride thing that I stumbled upon right there maybe is the best example of like ultimately this game. It's not. It doesn't matter that much how they get from point A to point B. All right. So our characters get to the Wind Shrine, and in the Wind Shrine they find the remains of the Wind Crystal. The shards are giving off a light. And each of them uh, imbues one of our characters, our our four main characters now, Ferris is also a main character, with its light. And then the King of Tycoon appears and names them the Warriors of Light and warns them that an evil is trying to destroy the other crystals and they've really got to dedicate themselves to protecting the other crystals. So this mirrors the third game in the franchise in which our characters are told relatively early on that they are the Warriors of Light, so they have to move forward with that knowledge. Let's take a moment to do a character study of Ferris. Pirates are cool. Pirates are way cool. And Ferris <laughs> is a pirate captain. We had a pirate in Final Fantasy I give us our ship after we defeated him in battle, Bike. We had a pirate in Final Fantasy II, whose name is Layla, who gave us her ship after we beat her in a fight, and then she joined our party. And now here we've got a pirate in Ferris. There's a lot of sort of pirate speak, especially early on with Ferris. He's deliberately kind of gruff and tumble, as it were. Sort of pushes... Again, all these characters are always giving each other a hard time. He pokes just as much as the rest, very sort of arm-punchy in in the way that he is friendly. Yeah, I think it lives on pretty well in some of the appearances. For example, like the world of Final Fantasy, that kind of 
whip cracking, you know, that you would expect and, and even hope for from a pirate captain, a little Barbosa before there was Barbosa. I don't know why I'm doing a bunch of movie crossovers today, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I dig it. And, and you're right, it does take a little bit of getting used to if you've played a lot of the Final Fantasy games, either four before it. We talked about one of the major themes being them coming together as a family. Certainly, our party in six is like that. And this this party is like that. It's a family for sure, but more of one that's kind of constantly giving each other a hard time where, you know, we're kind of used to our Final Fantasy parties picking each other up and always having each other's backs. And these guys have each other's back, but it's a different dynamic, one that takes some getting used to. And we get superpowers. Yeah. Once again, my favorite superpower would be to swap between the Final Fantasy classes. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> All right. So we've got to get to the water crystal. To get to the water crystal, we've got to go through the Torna Canal. And to get through the Torna Canal, we need the key to the canal, which means we've got to get to the town of Tool and talk to Zok. So this is early games, largely wandering around, trying to level up, get some ability points so you can level up your classes as well. When you get to the town of Tool, Zok will, uh, will pretend to have mislaid the key. And he does that because he's an old friend of Lena's family and he doesn't want her to get hurt. So this is sort of that patriarchal, I know what's best for you, you don't need to go on an adventure little lady kind of character. And, and then once uh, the characters sleep for the night, he changes his mind. But he doesn't give the key to Princess Lena, he gives it to Bart's. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. This is also a town with a... Uh, you, you know how in Final Fantasy games... I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but sometimes there will be uh, like a house where you can go in and get your tutorial so you can talk to all these characters and they'll teach you about the world. Sure. The super helpful random strangers that just... Right. Did you know that a long time ago... <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So you can go into that building and, and learn how, how the jobs work and how abilities work and how items work and all that good stuff. So with the key, you can go through the Torna Canal. Turns out Zok was right. There's a monster there called the Carlobos, which looks like a giant nightmare lobster scorpion danger bug. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Like you do. It's not terribly difficult to defeat. You defeat the monster, but then as you defeat it, Sildra, the, the tame sea dragon, gets sucked into a whirlpool. And it's really... Even with just these sound effects from a Game Boy Advance, it's really kind of awful, the, the cry that it makes. It's sort of high-pitched and, and pitiful in a way as it gets sucked into this, into this whirlpool, and then, and then we're left adrift. So Ferris is really upset because Ferris has, has grown up with this sea dragon. This sea dragon has helped him be a pirate uh, all over the world, and, and it's gone now. Yeah, so going back to, you know, my cynical first playthrough where I was just like, you know, what? Eh, it's a Final Fantasy game, it's a fantasy adventure, a monster died, it's too bad, but, you know, tough rocks, pal, we're moving forward, but going back and, and watching and playing through it a little bit more as a, what was the phrase I used before, an adult human being? Right. And... As a, I don't even like to use the word owner. I think parent is a bit strong, but as someone with a couple of pets of my own, the second time going back through that, it was heartbreaking. It was tough to do. Like, that's sad when you realize the relationship that they had and that it's not just to this point in Final Fantasy games, you've been slaying dragons. And in fantasy adventures, you, you slay the dragon, you know, Snow White. But. I wasn't conditioned to have a sad emotional reaction to the death of a dragon. And upon a second playthrough of this, I was struck by it, especially in a game I remembered being all silly adventure. And I was like, oh man, that's rough. Because the wind is dead, our characters are set adrift and they end up in the ship graveyard.
this is perhaps forecasting the, the phantom forest of Final Fantasy VI. Our characters have to... It's basically a dungeon of, of ships and you gotta go from ship to ship and then sometimes some of these ships yeah. are broken up so you gotta... There's some jumping, not, not really platforming because this isn't Final Fantasy XV or Final Fantasy X, but definitely uh, you, you gotta you got to be creative in how you get through this particular dungeon. And then halfway through, uh, we've had to go underwater and swim a bit. And our characters decide, you know what, we're going to stop here for the night. And they decide to set a fire to dry out, which means they're going to dry their clothes. Princess Lena, of course, being the only lady of the group, goes into a, a different room, a cabin, to dry her clothes. And the gentleman stay sort of outside in the, I don't know, sort of on deck, I guess. But Ferris refuses to get undressed, to let his clothes dry by the fire. And so I, I talked about, you know, they all sort of pick on each other. Well, Goliath and Bart's give him a hard time. Like, they are not, there's no sort of understanding of modesty here. They're like, you know, come on, what are you doing? Let it, and then they, like, try to help him get undressed, which is a little odd. <laughs> <laughs> Mildly awkward, but you know. Right, right. And then this is where we find out that Ferris is not a man, but a woman. Which is yeah. why she was being a little uh, hesitant to get undressed in front of these guys who she's just The met. Samus Aran reveal. <laughs> right. She explains that being raised amongst pirates, she felt it necessary to pretend to be a boy because all the pirates are men and pirates are pirates and that could have been very bad for her going the other way i'm gonna keep running this through now because there are some princess bride parallels there of wesley who runs off and has to kind of pretend to be harder than he is because he becomes the pirate for a little while and he has to explain that you know, that's just the, the pirate's life and that that pirate has long since died and he's just adapted the name. So he's kind of pretending to be somebody that he's not. Right, right. Uh, life and, at sea. <laughs> and there's somebody else now who's the Dread Pirate Roberts instead of him. Right. Right. I kind of dig that. Could be Ferris, for all we know. Sure. Now that's a multiverse theory. <laughs> Ferris is the new Dread Pirate Roberts. That's right. Interesting. So our characters decide fairly quickly that they they understand and they don't hold it against her that she lied to them and you know it's cool and we'll keep cruising as often happens when some of our final fantasy characters reveal something about themselves that was maybe misleading or that maybe they were embarrassed of like you said they are they behave like a family well okay so you're different that's cool let's keep moving yeah like with Prompto or yeah. whatever it is. And I yeah. like that they do that swerve, that that's, you know, a common Final Fantasy trope of like other people in the world may judge you or dislike you for this thing. And we were giving you a hard time 12 seconds ago, but now we get why. And just so you know, we're on your team. Right. I dig it. Yeah, me too. But that's because... We've been playing these games that's since true. we were five years old, and th that's part of the reason why we love them so much. It is worth noting that in my various researches as a high school librarian, I have read many articles that suggest people who read speculative fiction, and especially speculative fiction that includes people outside of what is known as sort of the default for a hero character in speculative fiction, the, the straight white guy. Speculative fiction that includes other types of characters tends to help readers of that spec fic be more tolerant of, interested in, okay with people who are different from them. They have lived vicariously these other experiences and therefore try not to hold other people's experiences against them and try to be more accepting of people who are different from themselves. And I think maybe for us, Final Fantasy helped us to be more accepting. I absolutely believe that. I give a lot of credit to this particular franchise for the way I look at the world and the way I view people who are not like me. This and X-Men. I have often said that you cannot properly understand, appreciate, and love the X-Men franchise and be a racist. You can't do it. It does not make 
any sense. Does not compute. For me, I, I think more than that, for sure, this franchise and stuff like this, where people make no big deal out of somebody being different or somebody fitting into a role that maybe traditionally they weren't supposed to or having a certain kind of power that traditionally they weren't supposed to and embracing those differences. And Final Fantasy at its core has always been about embracing differences. And it always shocks me when I come across people who are Final Fantasy fans or claim to be big Final Fantasy fans who then say really dumb and ignorant stuff about other people. But then I almost always find out that they're they don't know what's going on in the stories of these games. They play them because they like the aesthetic and the gameplay stuff. And I think anybody who digs into these narratives has to recognize a running philosophy and that it's probably impacted them in their lives as well. At the end of this dungeon, our characters face off against Siren. In Final Fantasy V, Siren is uh, a woman who can draw the memories from her victims and use them uh, against them. So, so she casts illusions for each of our characters. Bartz sees his mother Stella, who has passed away. Lena and Ferris both see King Tycoon, which is a hint to Ferris's parentage early on. And Golif, he sees a young girl, but Golif's memory is gone. He doesn't recognize her, even though Siren pulled the memory from his head. So he is unaffected by the illusions, and he's able to uh, knock sense back into his friends, and then they are able to defeat the monster. So uh, not unlike Yang, memory can be restored with a good with a good puncha puncha. I uh, love it. And this is another example of why we talked at, at the end of our conversation about four spec fic being so good at being able to tell stories that you, you couldn't otherwise get away with. This is a common trope you'll see the giving people memory. They do it in the Suicide Squad movie. It's been done in Superman comics, but giving people memories of something messing with their head. Typically, it's a villainous move to do that. And then having the kind of twist there for Goliath that his memory loss suddenly becomes an advantage. Good stuff. Love it. After leaving the ship graveyard, our characters make their way to the town of Carwin. In that town, they hear rumors of a Windrake seen flying to the North Mountain, uh, which is a clue of where to go next, and perhaps the king might be there. So our characters go up the mountain. They have a run-in with a couple of hunters, uh, Magisa and Forza, who shoot Lena with a poisoned arrow in an attempt to kidnap her. Ferris gets a really good moment here where she leaps across uh, this crevasse and nearly falls, but then climbs back up the cliff and tosses a rope to Bartz and Golif. And then they're, all, they're able to come together and uh, defeat these hunters. This is one of those scenes I think would look a lot better in a modern adaptation, or we talk all the time about... TV shows or movie adaptations of these things, an action sequence where, you know, she looks, she gets to look like a badass that I think if you got to kind of do a cool set piece there would drive that home a lot better. Well, when HBO gives us the money to, to adapt the Final Fantasy franchise into a live Living the dream. <laughs> Living the dream, my brother. We'll keep this in mind. They get to the top of the mountain where they find Lena's Windrake, Hiru, not the king. Lena gets a good moment here where she uh, has to cross through these poisonous flowers to get to the dragon grass, and then is able to take the dragon grass, which magically heals the wind drakes. So they're able to heal, uh, hear you, hear you is able to heal Lena of the poison, and then our light warriors finally have a way to fly across certain parts of the world map. They make their way back to Castle Tycoon, and in the night... Lena confronts Ferris with that uh, they both have the same pendant and you're my long lost sister, aren't you? And Ferris is like, eh, probably not. Though clearly, yes. Yes, she is. And she's just sort of <laughs> denying it right now. Uh, just a little bit of, you know, let's kick this plot point down the road a little bit. But that's a Right. So if you recall, we were trying to get to the water crystal, which is in the town of Vals. At least I think it's pronounced false. It's W-A-L-S-E. And I am assuming a German pronunciation here. In any case, 
they get they now with the Windrake, they can fly, they get to Vals, uh, and they tell him, they tell the King of Vals, hey, the wind crystal has shattered. I'm sure you've noticed the wind has stopped. We're pretty sure it's because of this amplification machine that we've been, all been using to amplify the power of the crystals to make the world prosperous. And you got to shut this down. And the king's like, dude, no, the machine protects my country. It has brought us great prosperity. And they're, they're arguing back and forth when suddenly a second meteorite hits the planet. Wow, that's bad luck with meteors. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get to that. So our party rushes to this scene of the falling meteorite. The king of Vals gets there first. And we find there that he and his soldiers have been defeated by this sort of elephant creature called a gorilla, which has been made berserk. So you defeat the gorilla, you get to the meteorite, and there's this soldier there. And he's dressed strangely. He's not dressed like anybody we've ever seen on this planet. And he addresses Goliath as, my lord. This crotchety old man as, my lord. Like, what the heck's going on here? But then he is wounded by the elephant creature before Goliath can can remember anything he, and, he, and he's killed and so our light warriors they have to defeat the elephant creature and then they're going to go in and stop the machine but they're too late and the water crystal shatters which on the one hand is really bad but on the other hand it means more classes <laughs> so like we talked right. about so, yeah, i'd like to be bummed out about this horrible tragedy for this particular world but new magic powers yes indeed I will collect more of my superpowers, thank you. So they, they gain their new jobs, and then the tower that the crystal is in, the water shrine crystal tower, there's another earthquake in it, and it falls into the sea. And our heroes are, are sure to drown, except, except, Sildra, the tame sea dragon, is not yet dead. He rescues them, and then is pulled away by the, the current of the earthquake. And now he's probably dead. Yeah, man, they gotta kill this dude twice. <laughs> oh, Not man. cool. Not cool. Like, at all. Already, already was hurt by having to say goodbye. Now we gotta do it again. That's a tough move. It's like they're making up for ground in Final Fantasy IV, where almost every time someone died, they came right. back, except for Tella. It's like, no, we're gonna kill this one twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not cool. And in a game, too, where they've established that, like, man-beast friendship is an important... Like, we're introduced to Bartz and Boko at the same time as a team. Right. So, ah, oh, come on, you're killing me, Final Fantasy V. I thought this was a lighthearted, colorful adventure. Right. So, exploring the meteorite, you can, they, they find out they can go inside the meteorite. And looking around in there, Bartz, being the dork that he is accidentally steps on a warp point and disappears and the rest of the light warriors are like question mark uh so they also step on the warp point and they find themselves in the karnak meteorite uh, which is a meteorite that has fallen near the kingdom of karnak sure uh (laughs) almost immediately upon exiting the meteorite our characters are arrested why are they arrested awesome this is the first of many tropes Getting arrested happens in Final Fantasy a lot. It happens definitely in Final Fantasy VII. It happens in ten. I'm pretty sure. Happens in The Spirits Within. Yes, that counts. Uh, yeah. I think you're constantly getting arrested in Final Fantasy XII. When are you not? Well, you're under arrest for that entire yeah, game. There's a warrant yeah. out a long, for a lot of that game. 15 uh, as well, pretty much the entire oh, sure. time you're under the run from the law. So, I suppose you know, getting means... arrested. So so whenever Magitech troopers drop from the sky in Final Fantasy 15, is that like getting pulled over? Yeah, right. Wow. Stop. You're under arrest. We're pretty <laughs> sure you're the prince that we keep saying is dead. Uh, <laughs> Does this look like the prince's car to you? I'm pretty sure this is the king's <laughs> car. Thank you very much. Ah, Nice. But yeah, the I don't know if it's the first time in Final Fantasy we've been arrested, but it's an early time of many, that's for sure. So our characters are arrested because they have emerged from the meteorite. And therefore, surely they must be in league with a werewolf that also emerged from the meteorite. <laughs> a little bit of Monty Python. <laughs> if she weighs the same as a duck... <laughs> oh, God. 
<laughs> then the warriors of light are made of wood. Burn them! Yeah, right? <laughs> well, considering the town of Karnak is powered by the crystal of fire, that would appear to me to be an apt analogy. <laughs> well done. Well done. So our characters are thrown in prison where they meet Sid Previa. This is the Sid of Final Fantasy V. He uh, blows a hole in the wall trying to escape, but rather than escaping, he blows a hole into their cell. So he just makes the cell bigger. Sid, in this world, is responsible for the amplification machines, the machines that amplify the power of the crystals, which we know now is also shattering the crystals. And he realized his mistake, but was imprisoned by Queen Karnak when he tried to shut down the device. I don't have a very high opinion of the people of Karnak, because we also learn that they have built this huge wall between their city and the Library of the Ancients not very far away. Like, I got no sympathy for a society that decides, I know what we'll do, we've heard something that we don't like that might be inconvenient for us as a group, and therefore what we'll do is we'll wall off the information. Like, fork these guys. I'm not impressed. Yeah, as the Black Panther recently reminded us in the global hit movie, it is... uh, the scared and the cowards who build walls when we should be building bridges. It, we are all part of one tribe. And I think Final Fantasy V is making a similar argument here in their depiction of the people of Carmack. And we are very quickly embroiled in their inner politics. And I think we're not supposed to like these people. <laughs> and for that reason, that they are tribal in their thinking and there's a clear argument here that that is bad and I am fine with Final Fantasy making that argument you can call it propaganda all you want I know some people will do that say well if you've got a message it's propaganda here to me is one of our first examples of Final Fantasy making a political argument very clearly and me being absolutely fine with that yeah, I would say it's, I mean, I guess you can call it propaganda, but I would say that it's just theme. And you don't have to agree with the theme, I guess, but yeah, building up walls as opposed to coming together as a world to fight Golbez or whatever, whoever the bad guy is in Final Fantasy V, is, I think, important. that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. Join us next time, when there will be more shatterings, evil trees, and an other world. Otherworld.